verses from Galatians 3, and I want to read verse 26 and verse 27. Galatians 3 says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I want to talk to you for a few minutes tonight on this title, Baptized into the Body. Baptized into the body. Now, you might think, well, I've been baptized already, so I know what he's going to preach on. Hang with me here, because it's, it's not what you think. Uh, so, the death of Jesus Christ. Let's start with that first, to lay some foundation. I've always believed, and I still do believe, and I've always taught, and you've heard me say it, that the death of Jesus Christ is the central event in all of the Bible. There's nothing that is more central than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we can talk about the resurrection, and of course the resurrection is what gave the death its efficacy. But without a death, there's no resurrection. Without the seed being planted and dying, it doesn't spring up into something new again. All of what happened before Jesus came and died led up to that event. And all of what happened after he came happened because of that event. Therefore, the cross is the central event in all of history. For upon the cross, history hangs. And not only history, but eternity hangs as well. For eternity, my friend, depends upon what you do with the cross. Matter of fact, John the Baptist said this, in John chapter 1, he said the next day, John sees Jesus coming into him and says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Now, John was, according to the words of the Lord himself, he was the greatest prophet up to that time. And Jesus said, Nevertheless, he that is least in the kingdom is greater than he. But, but up, up until the time that Christ came, John the Baptist was the greatest prophet. He was all of the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Moses, all of them were kind of summed up in John the Baptist. And that's why John the Baptist was able to quite prophetically point to Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God. Because that was a summation of all of the Old Testament scriptures. It was the summation of the message that Isaiah came to give. You can read that from Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, etc. That was the summation of Jeremiah and all the other prophets. They, you know, all of the Old Testament scriptures laid beneath, you know, the basic meaning of the story itself lies a more deeper spiritual meaning and impactful meaning. And all of the Old Testament said, behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 5. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. He said, whenever he said that they are testifying of me, he meant that they are testifying of the work that he came to accomplish. And namely, that of salvation and the work of the cross. So when Jesus said, you got to search the scriptures because in them you're going to find a testimony of me. He wasn't just saying they're going to talk about me, about how, how tall I am or about, about that, or, uh, that that was part of it. You know, 
because Isaiah did say that you know his visage was marked, so it did talk a little bit about his appearance, that he was not particularly a most ha- the handsomest guy on the block in particular, but he was a normal, ordinary person. So some of the prophecies did pertain to his normal, ordinary life, but most of them pertain to the work that he came to do. And that was his, his death and his resurrection. So, in fact, there is a principle that was established by God from the very beginning in Genesis that points to the cross. And it's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now, if you teach Bible studies or if you have been through a Bible study, that's a cheap, shameless plug for a Bible study, by the way. If you haven't been through a Bible study, it's a good idea to go through a home Bible study because you learn about all kinds of cool stuff like this. But... But it's a simple verse, but the principle is that God used death to cause us to re-enter eternal life. You see, animal skin, so, so Genesis 3.21 was after Adam had already fallen, and, and of course Adam tried to clothe himself with fig leaves. You know, that's man trying to, trying to do his very best to try to cover up for his sins, but God said it's not enough. You've got to have the covering that I have designed. And whether God killed it or Adam killed it or whether they were already dead, we don't know. But animal skins obviously came from dead animals, and it would have required the shedding of blood. So God used it to clothe them or to cover them. The word atonement, you know, and, and is kind of a $5 million word, but it just simply means a covering. That we needed a covering for our sins. Okay, so animal skins caused a covering. Uh, And then in verse 22, again, the same chapter of Genesis 3, it says this, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden, cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, whenever, whenever the Lord said, I want to kick him out lest he eat of the tree of life and live forever. You know, there were, there were two specific trees that were referenced in the book of Genesis. There was the tree of life, and then there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. One was a good tree. One was a very bad tree. One was eat all of this. But the other one was, eat none of this. Don't come near it. Don't touch it, lest you die. God made it very plain. He told Adam. Adam probably told Eve. And, and we know the rest of the story of how that story ended. And so God booted them out of the Garden of Eden. And the reason why he did this was because God said, if he comes back in, to the garden, and he eats of the tree of life after he's already ate of the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge of good and evil caused death. That death process began from the very moment that Adam and Eve uh, walked in disobedience and they crossed that line. Then from and, and they partook of that tree. From that point forward, the dying process began physically, but spiritually there was already that separation that was caused there. And so God said, if they go back in and they eat a tree of life, then they're going to live forever. In other words, they're going to be stuck being eternally sinful. And so that's why God said, I can't let them go back in to the garden and eat of that tree again. Because if they do, then the cure for sin, which was death, the death of Christ, 
it would have been thwarted. It would have thwarted God's final plan for redemption because Jesus Christ could not have came and died and redeemed mankind. You see, God used death to cause us to re-enter eternal life. That is a principle that you should keep in mind when you read your Bible. That many places where it talks about the death of an innocent animal in the Old Testament, all the ceremonial sacrifices, it's pointing to that principle. It's laying it down. It's establishing it. Without Christ's death, there is no resurrection. There is no Holy Spirit outpouring on the day of Pentecost. There is no forgiveness of sins and no reconciliation back to God. The veil of the temple does not get torn in two, and we are still dead in our sins. Because death was the only thing acceptable to God, the Old Testament pointed to Christ's death. He was Isaac, sacrificed on Mount Moriah as an offering to God. He was the Passover lamb, sacrificed on the Passover each year, commemorating Israel's exodus from bondage in Egypt. He was the brazen serpent lifted up in the wilderness that cured the Israelites from their plague. He was the scapegoat sent out into the desert on the day of atonement where was transferred all of the sins of the nation of Israel on the head of that goat and then sent out into what the Bible calls a far place. He was every bloody sacrifice ever sacrificed under the law of Moses for peace, for sins, for transgressions, for purifications, for restoration, and for healing. He was the ark in Noah's day that once inside was a place of safety from the judgment that was coming upon the world. Adam, Abel, Melchizedek, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Jonah, the flood, the plagues of Egypt, the Passover ceremony, the crossing of the Jordan River, the cities of refuge, the seven holy feast days, the, uh, you know, even the year of Jubilee, the day of atonement, all spoke to and pointed to the death of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, search the scriptures because I'm in there and it testifies of my death. Now, these are just a few of the many references that pointed to Christ's death. But the Old Testament spoke of and pointed to his sacrificial death and his sufferings. And by doing so, watch this, spoke of the body of Jesus Christ. The body that God would take on for the purpose of redemption. Look at, I wrote, I look at Psalms 40 and verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. In the Hebrew, that, the, you know, the word open there means bore. You, you bore me ears. And, and so, you know, again, you know, Psalms was written poetically. So he was saying as if you created my ears, you created my body. My ears hast thou opened. Burnt offerings and sin offering for sin thou hast not required. Notice he said, you created me and you didn't require any sacrifice for offerings and burnt offerings. What do these two things have have in common at all. You see, the writer of Hebrews quoted this verse and referenced it as speaking of the body of Jesus Christ. From Hebrews 10 and verse 5, wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, now he's quoting from Psalms 40, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. David said in Psalms 40, you have Mine ears hast thou opened, speaking of the creating hand of God, how he bore the ears inside the head. And so David was saying, you created me, you formed me in my mother's womb. But David was prophetically speaking of the body of Christ because 
Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews chapter 10, quoted David as not saying, my ears have you opened, but you have prepared for me a body. The body of Jesus Christ. The principle spoken of and alluded to over and over in the Old Testament. That death was the way to re-enter eternal life. Was pointing to specifically the body of Jesus Christ to be offered up for the sins of the world. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 furthermore speaks of this. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death, everybody say through death. He might destroy him that had the power of death. You see that? God used death to destroy death. That's the wisdom of God right there. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham. That word seed there in the Greek is sperma. It means literal seed conception he was conceived of this of the same stuff that we are made of God prepared himself a body to be crucified and resurrected again on the third day the body of Christ deliverance healing redemption salvation and peace all come through his death now the body of Christ is normally and metaphorically used to reference the church we say we're a part of the body of Christ. Or there's an argument among certain theologians. What do we have to do to be in the body of Christ? And by saying body of Christ, most people immediately, their mind normally goes to that metaphorically speaking about the church. And we refer to it as that. But scripturally speaking, it is so much more than that. It is inexplicably connected to the crucified body of Jesus Christ and how the church has been baptized into his death. Baptized into the body. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says this, If any man be in Christ, if any man be where? In his body. In his death. It doesn't say if any man be in God the Father. Why does it not say that? Because then it would not be talking about the specific humanity that, that the Father or the God himself put on in order to accomplish redemption. So he said, if any man be in Christ... If any man be in that body, if any man be in his death, are you getting this tonight? If any man be in his death, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. All things are become new. If any man be in Christ, if you are in his body, if you are in his death, that's the only way to do it. You've got to be in his death to be in a new creature. Colossians 1 and 21 says this, And you have to quicken, sorry, and you who were sometimes, uh, who sometimes alienated enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Watch what he says. How has he reconciled us? In the body of his flesh through death. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. How we were reconciled by the body of his death and through death we were delivered from death. You see the wisdom of God in that? In Romans 6 and 3 says this. I know most Pentecostals know this verse. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized in Jesus Christ were, were what? Baptized into 
his death. Show that image of, the, of, of Jesus on the cross again. Baptized into that. That's what we were baptized into. Do you understand what Paul is saying? That when you went down in this water, you were baptized into that body. Into his death. Now, you may not agree with that, but your disagreement is not with me. How do you get into his death? You get baptized into his death. Let's look at, let's look at Genesis chapter 5 in verse 2. Going all the way back to the beginning again. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Now, God called Eve's name Adam. There's a reason for that. We'll get into it a little bit later in this message. But Genesis 5 is the genealogical lineage of Adam. Okay, and when you read that chapter, you know, when you, if you read your, your Bible, and I know because we're all good Pentecostals and we love God, we all read our Bibles every day, right? Amen. I hope you read your Bible every day. Sunday school song, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow. grow. You may not know that song. I'm glad I'm not the only one that's old enough <laughs> to remember that song. And they taught us that. So since we all read our Bibles every day, you, and I'm sure that you just read slowly over Genesis 5 because it's the lineage and the begats. And this is how long Methuselah lived. He lived this long and this long and, and, and so many years. And then he gets to Enoch and, and all this stuff. It's the genealogy of Adam. Now there's a reason why the Lord says this. <coughs> because the entire human race was born into Adam's death. And that's why, and it's no coincidence that right after the first three chapters of Genesis talks about had the fall of Adam, Genesis 4 talks about how Cain really messed up bad. But then it goes right into the genealogy of Adam and talks about he lived and he died. And the, and the principle taught here is that if you were born, you were born into Adam's death. But watch this from Ephesians 3 and verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. In other words, there is Adam's death, and then there is Christ's death. The first Adam's death gives eternal death. But the last Adam's death gave eternal life. And that's why Paul said that the whole family in heaven and earth is named after him. Because when I was baptized here, I was born into his death, into his body. And now I'm no longer in Adam's death. I'm in Christ's death. And if I'm in Christ's death, I can get into his life. I'll say this, I don't care who teaches it any differently. I don't care how many theologian backgrounds that they've got behind, behind their name or how many, or, 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 or uh, you know, like what their name is or where they preached at. You are either in Adam's death or you are in Christ's death. And this is why we baptize into the name of Jesus Christ. Because the whole family in heaven and earth is named after him. Similar to the way when my wife and I got married, she changed her name from Baloo to Foster. 
She became named after me. She took on my name. So when I get baptized, I become part of the body of Christ. And I take on his name. If you want to get out of your grave, you got to go down into a watery one. You may not like it. You may be like, Naaman, I don't want to go down into that muddy Jordan River. There's a lot of other things I could do. You know, why can't that prophet ask me to do so many other great and mighty things? But Naaman, there's only one way to get rid of your leprosy. And that's if you go down into that muddy Jordan River. And when he came up after seven times, he was fresh and clean. If you want to get out of your grave, you got to go down into the water. How do you get into the body of his death? You get baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 10 and verse 17. Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. <clears throat> there is a principle here that's taught. And, you know, you can also find this from John chapter 4. He also kind of referenced this. But here's the principle. Whatever you bury in Christ is going to be resurrected. Whatever you bury in Adam is going to die. Whenever I give my life to God, whatever I give to him comes back better. My old nature is a seed that is planted into his death, into the watery grave. And whenever I plant that seed and it dies out, it sprouts up again into something new and better. Therefore, when I repented and was baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, my sin and my sin nature, and God promises to resurrect me again, I laid down my sin and my addictions and my grief, and I picked up his nature and joy and love and a new life. Because whatever you plant in Christ is planted in fertile ground. It's the only ground that produces a resurrection. If your life is really good already, guess what? He can make it better. If you're a billionaire and you don't have any problems and life is just hunky-dory and, and everything is going great, guess what? I got good news for you, my friend. You might be a billionaire. You might feel like things are going great, but you're getting hornswoggled if you don't get baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost because there is a better life awaiting you than anything that you could ever think about or imagine. Hornswoggled. I like that word. You must get into his death to get into his life. Numbers 19 and 11 says, He that toucheth the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. <clears throat> Why was he unclean? Just for touching a dead body. Because the law of Moses taught us that all are dead in sins and everything is defiled that's dead. You got to get that revelation in your spirit. If it's dead, it's defiled by, by definition. So if you're born into Adam's death, guess what you are? Defiled by nature. But when you come into contact with Christ's death, you're cleansed from sin because he's not dead anymore. He's alive. Now, if he was still in the grave, then his death would have been for naught. But the resurrection validated and made it efficacious what he did on the cross it made the work of the cross efficacious it gave us it gave it its effectiveness look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 <clears throat> and you have to quicken who were dead in trespasses and sins 
The word quicken here means to make alive. Now, you, I'm not going to read the whole chapter here, but this is talking about when you were filled with the Holy Ghost. You were made alive because that spirit is a quickening spirit. Remember whenever God breathed into Adam's nostril the breath of life, the man became a living soul. Adam was dead. He was born from the dust. From the dust, his physical body came from the earth. You know, God, God took up dust. He formed it however God did it, formed his body. But that body was dead and lifeless until God breathed in his nostrils a living human spirit. Okay, And it was at that point that Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so in the same manner, until we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus breathed on him in John chapter 20? And what did he say? Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Speaking prophetically that it wasn't going to be very much long. You're going to be hiding in an upper room for fear of the Jews. But suddenly you're going to start praying and the wind's going to start blowing. Amen. And you're going to start speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. Jesus said it's going to be like the wind. In John chapter 3, he told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wants. And you hear the sound, but you can't tell where it comes or whither it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So whenever the Spirit, and by the way, the word Spirit is the same Greek word for wind. It's where we get the word pneumonia from, P-N-E-U-M-A in the Greek, and it's the same word, you know, spirit or wind. And, 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 and so what Jesus was saying was that whenever God gives you that Holy Spirit, he is breathing life into you in the same manner as God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul, and he became, uh, you know, a person of dominion and walking in all that God had for him in that day. You are dead and defiled until you come into contact with his death and his resurrection. Ephesians 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus. In what? In who? Show that image of, of that cross again. Of that. Every place you read in Christ, I hope you see that image right there. But you are in Christ because that is exactly what Paul had in mind when he said, if you are in Christ, if you are in his death, in his resurrection, if you are in his body in Christ, you are sometime afar off, are made nigh by the what? The blood. See, the blood of Christ. That's how we know he's referencing the body of Christ because it references his blood. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles. Having abolished, here it is again, in his flesh, in his body, the enmity. Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make himself between one new man to making peace. Are you in his body? Are you in his death and resurrection? Have you been baptized and spirit filled, my friend? Because there it is the only way to get into Christ. To get into his body. To get into his death. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles. Whether we be bond or free. And have it all been made to drink into one spirit. How do I get into his death and resurrection? Paul just said it. Right there. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. It's no play on words. When John saw Jesus, and Jesus said, you got to baptize me. And Jesus said, or, or, sorry, John said, no, 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 I'm not even wearing to stoop down and tie your sandals. And I need to be baptized of you. But John said of Jesus, he will baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. What sat on their heads on the day of Pentecost? 
cloven tongues like as a fire. Cloven means divided. It, it, it referenced back to that pillar of fire in the wilderness that symbolized this is where God is. This is where I dwell. I dwell in the fire. It was a pillar of fire. A cloven tongue like as a fire sat upon them. God was giving them a physical sign beyond just speaking in tongues that this was the same baptism that they came into. This was the same spirit. Amen. If you're going to get into the body, you got to get into it just like they did on the day of Pentecost. It's not enough to go to a Billy Graham crusade and say a sinner's prayer. you got to get in the body the apostolic way. My friend, there is only one way to be saved, and it's born of water and born of spirit. So Paul said, if you're going to get in his body, you got to get baptized into the spirit. How do I get into his death and resurrection? Water baptism, spirit baptism. There are two baptisms mentioned in scripture. One is by water and one is by the spirit. God destroyed the earth the first time by water. We call it judgment. Noah called it deliverance. Do you know Noah's name means rest? Lamech, who was Noah's father, Noah's grandfather was Methuselah. His great-grandfather, great, great, one or two greats, was Enoch. Enoch was that dude who walked with God. It was not for God took him. There was a prophecy, I, I believe, apparently that went, over Enoch, that went over Noah when he was born that said God is going to give the earth a rest in these days. Rest from what? Rest from, from all of the, the nonsense and sin and debauchery that was going on. Imagine if it was just Pastor Gary, Jackie, and if you had six kids. <laughs> and you guys were the only ones living for God in a world of millions of people. There, everybody else was, was just horrible, woeful sinners. And you guys were the only ones. You couldn't come to church and see all these wonderful people. It's just you guys. Can you see now how Noah must have felt? How many people were saved in Noah's day? Eight. How many people were alive on the earth? Well, we don't know. <laughs> but there was a lot. Even God said, man, <laughs> even I'm surprised at this. Every thought of the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. Constantly sinful. And Noah was the only one. So can you imagine the, the, the oppression that he must have been under? Constantly worrying about who's going to break into my house tonight. What's going to happen to my daughters? What's going to happen to my kids? I mean, it, it, was, it was a constant. And we, we feel bad because we live kind of sort of in that world today, but we have each other. We've got the church. We've, we've at least got, got some, you know, even though pe not everybody in Washington, you know, is following the scriptures, at least there's still some good people there that are doing their best to try and live right and trying to do their best for the country. We've, we've got that comfort. But Noah did not have that. And so God said, I'm going to give you rest. Rest by how? When that water came and washed everything away, Noah said, thank God, because now it's just righteousness on the earth. And so what they called judgment, Noah called rest and deliverance. The first time, God used water. The second time, he will use fire. That's how he's going to destroy the earth. God said, right after Noah, he, Noah built him that sacrifice early on in, in Genesis, right after he came up out of the ark. And, and God said, okay, never more, never again. I won't ever destroy the earth by water. As long as time remains, he said. Seed time and harvest, day and night shall not cease. And God put a bow in the sky, a bow that stretches from the earth 
to heaven, there's Jesus right there, by the way, the great mediator between man and God. You know, that body of Jesus Christ. There's the, see, Jesus is all over the Old Testament. He's all over there. Amen. And, and, and so we have two testimonies. One is by water. Noah called it a cleansing or a rest. And the second one will be by fire, which will redeem the earth from impurities and wickedness. And only the righteous will remain in that day. So there is judgment to the world and there is redemption for the saints. And that is speaks of the same way that God redeems us. He uses water and he uses fire. The two witnesses, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, Verily I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was a good man, a ruler of the Pharisees in his day. He obeyed every jot and every tittle of the law. He was a good man, as good as, as good or gooder, <laughs> as you and I are. He was a good man. He kept all the Ten Commandments to the best of his ability. Jesus looked right at him. said, you got to be born again. Now, if you're not better than Nicodemus, then who do you think you are to say you don't need to be? Because Jesus said, oh, yes, you do. The gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. You need both to be saved. Look at 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Watch what he says now. And we're all baptized. Everybody say, unto Moses. In the cloud and in the sea. Israel was baptized unto Moses. In the cloud and in the sea. That's water and spirit, by the way. Again. But we are baptized not unto Christ. But into Christ. By water and by spirit. Moses had the type, we've got the reality. Moses had the cloud and the sea, we've got the water and the spirit. We've got the reality of that which Moses could only dream of. We've got the reality of all the things that the law pointed to and, and prophesied about and said it's coming one day, and then one day it came, and here it is right now, and it's available tonight, and you should not let this night go by until you have participated in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, we are not coming unto Christ. We are coming into Christ. Into his death, into his life. Because there are many that have came to Christ. You've even heard people say, well, when I came to Christ, this happened. And what they mean is that they repented of their sins. They walked down the aisle, they said a sinner's prayer, and they had a genuine lifestyle change. Nobody can deny it. They came to Christ. In the same manner that Moses had disciples. But they never came into Moses because they could not come into Moses. They only came unto him. In other words, they came to his general teachings. Moses said, here's the Ten Commandments. Obey the Ten Commandments. And they tried to obey the Ten Commandments. So they came unto Moses. Moses said, here's the ceremonial law. Here's all the sacrifices you got to keep. Here's what you got to do whenever you, whenever you steal somebody's cow or whenever you knock somebody at the head. This is what happens. And they had the civil law and the ceremonial law. And they had the moral law of God. And they had all these things. And they obeyed Moses' teachings. Therefore, they came to Christ or to Moses. And there's a lot of people within the broad spectrum of Christianity today. Watch me. Listen to this now who have came to Christ, but they have not came unto Christ. 
or into Christ. They have not came into him. They're generally obeying all of his teachings. They're generally obeying all the Ten Commandments. They're living the best life that they know how. They might be giving you know, all their tithes and offerings. They might have lived a repentant life, but they have never came into that body, into that death. And I'm telling you that God is calling you to take a step further. I'm calling you, says God tonight, not to come to me, but to come into me, to put my death on, to get into my resurrection and walk into my body. Noah's Ark is the first scriptural type and shadow of baptism, according to the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 3 and 20 references that. But Noah went only on top of the water and never came into contact with the water itself. Next, we have Moses. Moses' name means drawn from the water. Moses, as you know, was put in ark of bulrushes, and whenever he floated down the Nile River, he came to Pharaoh's daughter. Moses' daughter drew him from doing from the water, doing from the Nile, and said, I'm going to call his name Moses or Moses because he was drawn from the water. Can you see the type of baptism there? Drawn from the water. I'm glad I was drawn from the water. Amen. I was dead in my sins. Crocodiles were getting ready to eat me up, but God said, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. Here you go. I'm going to draw you from the water. I'm going to make you a new creature in me. I'm going to put you into my death. But Moses led Israel through the parted waters of the Red Sea. And they came closer to the water than Noah did. Noah, who went on top of the water but never came in contact with the water, and the Israelites were led through the Red Sea, through the parted waters, but they never still came into contact with the waters. The Bible says dry ground. Next, we see Joshua, who was Moses' successor, who led Israel through the Jordan River. Joshua was instructed by God, command the priest to bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come into the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you will stand still in the Jordan. You understand the first time they came to the Red Sea, God said, you're going to go through it. Waters parted. The second time they came to the Jordan River, they're getting ready to enter the promised land. God said, I want you to get down into the water this time. And by doing so, they came into closer contact with the water. Then there was Jonah who was completely submerged in the whale belly beneath the water. Thus, the intensity of baptism escalates in Scripture, leading up to one man whose name was John the Baptist, who looked at the Pharisees and the prostitutes the same and said, get down into this water and get baptized for the remission of your sins. And the Pharisees said, well, we have Moses as our father. We don't need to. You know what they were saying? They understood only proselytes were baptized. They called it the mikvah, going to the waters of mikvah, which means separation. And so a proselyte who was a converted Gentile, in order for him to become a Jew, he would be baptized and would come under the teachings of the rabbi who baptized him. And it was always by immersion. So when John the Baptist told the Pharisees and Sadducees, you got to be baptized. They said, oh, no, we don't. We're not proselytes. Abraham is our father. And John said, oh, no, no, no. God is able to raise up of these stones children unto Abraham. But the axe is laid to the root of the tree. 
God was cutting some things down and replanting some things in his day. And, and what John the Baptist was saying was that God is getting ready to cut down a lot of things and anything that's not left in Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how much tithes you pay. I don't care how long you've been at church. I don't care how long you're a theologian. I don't care how many seminary degrees you have behind your name. I don't care if your name is Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. you got to be born again of the water and of the spirit. There's no other way to do it. Thus, the intensity of baptism increased until we get to John the Baptist, who was complete immersion. Jesus himself had two baptisms. One, he was baptized by John. I've talked about that. Jesus said, you know, I mean, John said, God, I'm not going to baptize you. You don't need to get baptized. And Jesus said, no, in order to fulfill our righteousness. He was physically baptized by John the Baptist. The second one was this in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened to it be accomplished? You understand that he spoke of his death on the cross as a baptism. It is no wonder that Paul got the revelation by saying we are baptized into his death. The cross itself was what Jesus called a baptism. Every type and shadow of baptism in the Old Testament speaks of and points to his death as the ultimate baptism. It, it, it doesn't just speak of the water. The water is only the means by which we get into his death. And the Holy Spirit baptism is the means by which we get into his resurrection. I'm almost done now. I just got just a little bit more left. I promise you I will end at 8 o'clock, if not before then. Adam was put into a deep sleep. Wouldn't it be great for all you single folks if God just said, take a rest. I'll give, you a, I'll give you a bride or a spouse when you wake up. There they are. <laughs> Doesn't happen that way. <laughs> but that's the way it happened with Adam. Adam was put into a deep sleep, and from his side, his rib, came his bride Eve. In the same manner, Jesus was put to death, which is a deep sleep, and from his side came his bride. For when the soldier pierced his side, blood and water came out. And the bride came from his side in the same way that the bride came from Adam's side. The blood, blood, and water. One of the soldiers with the spirit, this is John 1935, pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. The blood and the water was always, if you study blood and water together, it was, it was in the mixture in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 13 and four, chapter 14. It was in the cure for leprosy. It was, a, it was a mingling of the blood and the water together. You can read uh, from, from whenever Moses, according to, to Hebrews chapter 9, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of, 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 uh, of calves and of goats with water and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. At the dedication of the law of Moses, at the commemoration, there was a mixture and a sprinkling of blood mingled with water. What was God saying? Is It's not just the water. It's the blood mixed into the water. When the blood gets into the water, when you're baptized into this name, into the name of Jesus, and you go down into this, into this watery grave, you come in contact with his blood, my friend, in the same way that the blood and the water will mingle together in the Old Testament. And that 
that symbolized the blood and the water, the cure for sin that would come out of the side of the Lord that would produce a bride that could get into his body and could get into his death and get into his resurrection. Hallelujah. Tonight, for those who are baptized in Jesus' name and spirit-filled, get into his body tonight. For those who are not. For those who already are, let this truth sink deep down into your spirits and your hearts. Let it become a spirit revelation. And I'm sorry, I didn't give the media team this verse. So I know I'm going to pull a left turn on them. But it's not their fault that it's not up there. But this is from 1 Corinthians 12, 27. We are so intricately connected to Jesus that the Lord himself refers to us as his own body. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ. And to further illustrate this, remember what Adam, the first thing that Adam said to Eve. He didn't say, hey, baby. Put in his deep voice, hey, baby. Flex his muscles. He said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, this is Genesis 2.23, because she was taken out of me. Whose flesh was Eve? Adam said, she's my flesh. And, you know, when I read this, the Lord really showed, the Lord just kind of jumped up at him because I, I always thought man and woman are one flesh, but that's not what it's saying. It means my wife is my flesh. That means in, in the confines of a marriage covenant, that marriage covenant is so binding with God that when, when my wife and I got married, God looks at my wife as part of my flesh and my own body. And again, I know I'm throwing a lot out at you here, but if Ephesians 5, 22 through 32, I'm not going to reread all those things. The media team's like, what in the world? Because <laughs> I didn't give them those verses. But Ephesians 5, 22 through 32 talks about the relationship between a husband and a wife and how it symbolizes. Well, first he talks about how, how a husband should, 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 should treat his wife the way Christ treated the church. And a wife should, should treat her husband in the same sense that the church is submitted to and loves Christ. And then at the end in verse 30, he says this. This is a great, verse 32, sorry. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What was he saying? I'm not talking about marriage here, folks. That's what he was saying. I'm talking about how the church is relating to Christ. That in the same sense that a husband and a wife are one flesh. So whenever you're baptized into his death, into his body, God looks at it like it's like a marriage covenant. And you become into his body. You become part of his body. You're his bones. You're his body. And you can read, you can read this all over the New Testament. There, you know, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 12 or 14, where he said, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We're his hands. We're his feet. Let this revelation sink down into your spirit because we did not just join a church. You got into a body. And I know we're getting ready to face a very challenging year. And we don't know what's going to happen this year as far as 2022. Oh, hasn't it already gotten off to a great start? 
COVID's filling up the hospitals, and I'm not trying to be negative, but, you know, it's not even the first week yet. We don't know what's going to happen. On top of that, we're still in our building. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of things, but this I know. We are in his body, and we need to start being the body to a lost and a hurting world. So let this revelation sink down into your spirits because whatever he was in this world, so are we. Let's stand tonight. Lift your hands right now to the Lord. Are you in his body tonight? Are you baptized into his body? If you are baptized into it, then start getting this revelation sink down into your spirit. You're in his death. You're in his resurrection. You're in unity with him. I just want to open up the altars tonight. Anybody that would like to come and find a place to talk to God, just, just let God sink this revelation down into your spirit. In the name of Jesus tonight, God. Yeah. 